When they're taking knees, there's plenty of time to do knees and there's plenty of time to do lots of other things. Stick to sports. Be happy, be cool is the message from the president. Fans are playing so much money to watch and enjoy. Football game is no place to protest. Stick to sports. To stick to sports. Or as someone once said, shut up and dribble. Stick to sports. Drop the politics, stick to sports. The whole stick into sports thing isn't my vibe. Try telling the story of Muhammad Ali, or Jackie Robinson, Billie Jean King, Jim Thorpe, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, Colin Kaepernick or the 1980 U.S. hockey team, or the 2019 Women's World Cup champion team. Try telling those stories without a single mention of the larger world in which they took place. Keep politics out of sports? Sports are politics. Sometimes it's directly on the ballot. Sports are the front lines for progress in racial, gender, and social politics, and as sport goes, so does the nation. It can give a voice to those who would otherwise be less noticeable in the political arena than they are in the athletic one. And sports are one of the few communal events for an increasingly fractured society. Sticking to sports is dangerous, and when things like injustice, racism, and bigotry are overlooked for the quote-unquote sanctity of the game, it can have real-life effects which can be felt the world over. We could focus on a variety of events and people to see the folly in pretending that sports should be separate. But for this episode, I want to focus on the story of rugby, how it was spread across the globe through British might, and its violent impact between two Commonwealth nations. I'm Mason Masters. Welcome to Journeyman Sports. The story of rugby is a story of colonialism. The game that would become rugby was played in England by the 1820s, and according to legend, William Webb Ellis was playing an early version of soccer when he just picked the ball up and ran with it. Now, that story has almost zero mooring in the truth, but as Jimmy Stewart once said, This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. No, it's the other guy. My wife is correct. Uh, that is the other guy in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Moving on! It was thought that rugby was a great way to build up toughness in the youth, and for this reason, rugby quickly became the staple of life at elite colleges like Cambridge and Oxford. Rugby was exported out of the collegiate sphere and into the larger world by the graduates who played it. Rugby's first trips abroad were to England's neighbors and closest subjects, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. But the sport was soon taken around the world by military men and diplomats as they were sent to far-flung shores. Places like South Africa, Fiji, Australia, Japan, and New Zealand were all introduced to rugby to varying degrees, and in each of these locations, the British newcomers played the sport for pleasure. These settlers, and then often the native populations, raised the game with inventive play, and very soon, England was overtaken by several of her own subjects in rugby prowess. Over the past hundred years or so, there have been two nations who have largely dominated international rugby. South Africa, and New Zealand. These nations went about achieving their dominance in very different ways, and how they became the titans they currently are reflects their societal upheaval throughout time. Everybody plays rugby in New Zealand. Men play, women play, kids play, even the hobbits play. It's a unifying event in their culture, one that utilizes 80 brisk minutes to bring together all who embrace the love of watching an opponent get ground into powder. Rugby found a Shangri-La of sorts in New Zealand, and that makes it easy to forget that it was brought to the islands by an invading force. Before the British arrived, 
the Maori people inhabited the islands that make up the nation. Captain James Cook would survey the area in the 18th century for the British Empire, and just after the start of the 19th century, fighting would break out in earnest, not only between the native population and the British, but between tribes. Thousands died in the ensuing musket wars that continued for decades as Maori tribes fought each other over large swaths of land, thanks to European-supplied guns. In 1840, the first permanent British colonists would land, annexing that land and setting up the first permanent European establishment of Wellington. From there, the usual progression of European colonialism took place. In the beginning, there was uneasy acceptance in the form of the Treaty of Watangi, which made Maori people subjects of the crown, but guaranteed they kept possession of their native lands. That predictably gave way to skirmishes and outright wars the British went back on their word and took more and more of that land for themselves. This encroachment displaced and impoverished a large percentage of Maori. They, like many native peoples who made contact with the various empires of Europe, found themselves as second-class citizens. Their population was beginning to dwindle after decades of violence, disease, and poverty. Much of their culture lay in ruins, and their natural resources were greatly depleted. The only real place in society where Maori were treated fairly was on the rugby pitch. Maori men threw themselves into the sport and relished the chance to best their colonizers at their own game. They were the ones that brought a rich man's game to the working class in New Zealand. A Maori man named Joe Warbrick even featured on the first rugby team to tour Australia in 1884, and he personally helped organize two trips for an entirely native team to Great Britain and Australia in 1888. White rugby players acknowledged and widely respected their Maori counterparts' play. This respect led to integration on the pitch and put Maori faces in their culture front and center in communities that often didn't have much contact with the native population. It took decades, but slowly, New Zealand started to mend from the trauma of colonization. Are things perfect? Well, the Maori still face challenges in education, healthcare, and employment that indigenous people globally are all too familiar with. But 180 years on, New Zealand is more or less a cohesive nation. And looking back, it's not outlandish to say that if the white New Zealanders had cut the Maori population out of rugby, their beloved All Blacks rugby team, and more importantly, their nation, would have suffered tremendously for it. It becomes easier to imagine that dystopia simply by looking at the All Blacks' biggest rival, South Africa. South Africa's racial history is very complex, and it's easy to get bogged down in all of the horrific details. But it's important to know how that nation formed in order to understand what role the rugby team would eventually play for that nation. The first Europeans made their way to the shores of what would be South Africa in the late 1400s, Not long after, the Dutch began to settle around Cape Town. The Dutch, or Boer settlers, would slowly work their way into the interior of the area, exploiting the local population for their land and their labor. Then precious minerals and diamonds were discovered in large quantity. This is when the British entered the scene. Wanting in on that whole blood diamond and free labor thing, the British Empire fought the Boer settlers for control of the land and its resources during the turn of the 20th century, eventually wrestling control from them and adding South Africa to the Queen's dominion. South Africa's black population wasn't given any say within the new government or of their land. They became third-class citizens behind the newly dethroned Boer, and as black people were being forced off their land and out of cities by the thousands, whites were consolidating their wealth and power. In 1948, the official lawful segregation of blacks and whites, known as apartheid, or apartness, was adopted. South Africa would then follow the same playbook that many nations used in the 20th century to show the strength of their ideas on the world stage. Sports. 
South African rugby teams demolished their competition throughout most of the 20th century. Their style of play was brutal and violent, traditionally relying on the size and strength of their players to demoralize smaller opponents. And for decades, it was widely agreed that these rosters, which excluded and ignored black players, were the best teams in the world. The Springboks, as they are known, became a literal representation of might being right. Whether or not their players and coaches would admit it, the Springboks were a tool to further their government's assertion that the European race was the dominant race. As far back as the 1930s, there had been international pushback against South Africa's racial segregation. The 1934 Commonwealth Games, an event held between former and current dominions of the British Crown, were moved from Johannesburg to London due to the pre-apartheid government's unwillingness to allow non-white participants. In 1964, while other parts of the world were experiencing their own civil rights movements, the first major sports-related rebuff of the apartheid government happened. The Interior Minister of South Africa went on record to say their Olympic team would not be integrated. So, the International Olympic Committee or the IOC, withdrew South Africa's Olympic invitation to the Tokyo Games. The IOC, in their traditional ass-backward manner, offered to reinstate South Africa for the next Olympic Games, and then quickly withdrew that offer after much of the African continent threatened to boycott the Games. The United Nations called for a sporting boycott on South Africa in 1968. By 1970, the country was formally expelled from the IOC and Olympic contention. Other international sports bodies followed the IOC's path, and South Africa found itself frozen out of nearly every international sporting stage. Only one sport allowed South Africa refuge, and as it turned out, their biggest foe on the pitch became their only real lifeline. The International Rugby Board never kicked out South Africa, and the New Zealand All Blacks would tour the nation in 1970. The Springboks first visited New Zealand 50 years earlier. Members of the press that accompanied the Springboks on the trip reported back their dismay at not only having to compete against Maori players, but the fact that white Kiwis were cheering on those players. One reporter telegrammed, quote, Bad enough having to play officially designated New Zealand natives, but spectacle thousands Europeans frantically cheering on band of colored men to defeat members of own race was too much for Springboks who frankly disgusted, end quote. The Springboks basically had to suck it up and deal with the integration of the All Blacks when they played in New Zealand. But it was a different ballgame when it came time for South Africa to host. New Zealand would send all-white teams to South Africa, despite large petition efforts from home fans to use integrated squads. For a test series in 1960, over 150,000 people signed a petition against sending a single-race team. They were ignored, and white New Zealanders flew off to Africa without their Maori teammates. Seven years later, a tour was actually cancelled after New Zealand Prime Minister Keith Holyoke argued against a segregated squad by saying, quote, In this country, we are one people. Things changed in 1970, but not because South Africa had bowed to the pressure I spoke of earlier. No. The reason the All Blacks were headed to South Africa was because their Maori players had been given the status of honorary whites. It's an understatement to say that this pissed people off. And for good reason. For one thing, it's the opposite of an honor for the Maori people. The status honorary white was incredibly demeaning, giving bureaucratic strength to South Africa's claim that the white race was the superior race. And on top of all of that, it had to be gutting to see the New Zealand government and their rugby union accept this idiocy as legitimate policy. Their acceptance of this status was seen by many outside the rugby world as acceptance of apartheid. 
Many in New Zealand felt betrayed by this acceptance, but many others, and stop me if this sounds familiar, argued that sports and politics should remain separate and that the relationship between these two teams should continue. Regardless of what these people may have felt, racism and bigotry had turned this rivalry into a powder keg ready to go off. A crisis was averted three years later when plans for a Springbok tour to New Zealand were shelved, thanks in part to the citizen organizing group HART, or Halt All Racist Tours, and newly minted Prime Minister Norman Kirk, who did something unprecedented. He told the New Zealand Rugby Union, No. Kirk faced a great deal of blowback for this move. When running for office in 72, he promised to not step in to delay or cancel the Springboks tour. But Kirk saw what others couldn't or just wouldn't. Allowing the rugby relationship between the All Blacks and the Springboks to continue was dangerous and untenable, and it would cost his party dearly. Kirk died suddenly in 1974, and in the following general election, Labour's main opposing party, the Nationals, would use the cancellation of the Springboks tour as a stick to repeatedly beat the Labour Party with as they took back control of the country. Following the election, Robert Muldoon became Prime Minister, and he made it very clear that New Zealand's government would no longer stand in the way of their rugby union. The announcement of this tour could not have come at a worse time. In 1976, children in Soweto began protesting a South African law that essentially outlawed the use of indigenous languages in schools. Thousands of students took to the streets to demand a change. These protests were brutally put down by the government, and riots soon broke out, causing an ever harsher response from the security forces. The official death toll from the government's response is still 176. Historians believe that number is much higher. The Soweto uprising shocked the world, and yet here was New Zealand, ready to tour South Africa once again. African nations wanted New Zealand to be expelled from the IOC for their continued cooperation with South African athletics. And about 30 nations boycotted the 76 Olympic Games in protest when that demand was not met. Those games were held in fellow Commonwealth nation Canada. And the fact that New Zealand showed up, but much of the African continent didn't, was not taken lightly by the hosts. The Commonwealth heads of state met in 1977 to try to convince New Zealand into joining the fold and boycotting South Africa. Robert Muldoon's government balked at their attempt, and the New Zealand Rugby Football Union formally invited the Springboks for a test series to be played in 1981. 1981 was an election year, and Muldoon's government knew how important the tour could be in the provincial parts of the country. So, in essence, you had the Prime Minister of New Zealand, a man who was one of the leading voices for keeping sports and politics separate, actively incorporating sports into his political strategy. Muldoon would stand firm, and the tour would go on. The anti-apartheid activists in New Zealand were ready. Several groups, including Hart, worked together to make sure that their disapproval of the test series would be visible. The Springboks weren't just coming over for the weekend. This test would last over 50 days, as the international side not only played the All Blacks multiple times, but other local teams as well. Activists were hoping to keep their message in the public eye over the course of the visit. Even they couldn't really have understood what was coming, though. On July 19th, the Springboks arrived in New Zealand, and all hell broke loose. Poverty Bay would host the Springboks for a warm-up friendly. The day before, Maori protesters broke into the grounds and covered the field with broken glass. 
The glass was removed and the game was held without delay, but as the two teams prepared for their match, supporters of the tour and anti-apartheid activists collided in earnest for the first time. A planned anti-tour march veered off course and plowed through a golf course, reaching the stadium where the game was being played. Fans entering the stadium and the protesters clashed, with police trying to keep the protesters off the grounds. This kind of chaos would become the normal state of events. On July 25th, hundreds of activists succeeded in storming the rugby pitch in Hamilton, huddling and chanting in the middle of the field. Unable to move these protesters, it was announced to the crowd that the match would be cancelled. This sent the sold-out stadium into a rage. People were throwing objects onto the field towards the protesters, and many of the angry fans leaving the venue took out their emotions on the protesters outside of the stadium. From that point on, twice a week for the remainder of the tour, chaos would descend onto a new city in New Zealand. After being met with police nightsticks outside of Parliament, protesters started wearing body armor and helmets. Friends would taunt each other by name. Family members would mock one another from each side of these skirmishes. The presence of the South African team and all of the baggage it carried was testing the very fabric of society on this once peaceful island in the Pacific Ocean. Its people were literally fighting in the streets. They were not only fighting about the country's relationship with South Africa, but over their own country's treatment of their marginalized people. What had started out as an anti-apartheid movement was beginning to teeter on a complete civil breakdown. Matches were still being played through all of this, and the All Blacks would square off against the Springboks for the first time on August 15th. Two New Zealand players, Bruce Robinson and Captain Graham Morey, both sat out due to their personal stances against apartheid. Missing the pair, however, did not impede the All Blacks from winning 14-9. As the two teams would bind and set in the scrums, thousands of protesters scrummed with the police as they desperately tried to keep the incensed mob away from the stadium. And complicating their job were the supporters of the tour, who would throw rocks, bottles, and concrete at the protesters. The same scenes would play out on August 29th in Wellington for the second meeting between the teams. Really, the only thing that changed was the winner of the match. The Springboks would take it 24-12. By this time, the people of New Zealand were exhausted. This tour had turned into a nightmare, and it had turned their nation inside out. Finally, after what had to seem like an eternity, the tour was nearing an end. The final and deciding match was held on September 12th in Auckland. As was the new normal for match days, riots broke out on the streets around the stadium. Police were pelted with rocks. The protesters were struck with batons. Police knew that keeping the atmosphere inside the stadium would be paramount to controlling the situation. As protesters tried to storm the grounds, they were fended off. The plan of deflection on the ground was working, but the police couldn't fathom where the protests would be taking off from next. Marks Jones did, though. He was taking off from the airport in a Cessna filled with flour and smoke bombs, and he was headed towards Eden Park. Once they arrived, the plane flew low, and Jones and his partner in crime, Grant Cole, would toss out their bombs over the park. Flour rained down onto the field and into the stands. You can actually hear the plane as it buzzes the field and drops some of its cargo. Quite an unusual feeling of tenseness because there is a light plane circling the ground and dipping in low and dropping things into the crowd. Uh, there originally was uh, a... Uh, a series of pamphlets dropped onto the playing field which were cleared away. There were then some flower bombs dropped in. Those are the gestures from the crowd as the plane comes over yet again. There's the plane coming in very low over Eden Park. 
it seems to me to be just uh, just above the grandstand height. Why at this point the game wasn't called off boggles my mind. But pretty much everything about how we got to this moment boggles my mind, so really that's par for the course. The Cessna would continue to circle the field throughout the game. At one point, an All Blacks player was actually struck by something tossed from the plane, knocking him over. The All Blacks would win this final deciding game 25-22 on an extra time kick, ending what had to be one of the most surreal games of any sport ever played. The tour was finally over. Police had spent $15 million on security, two games had been canceled, and 150,000 people had taken to the streets. And after all of this, Robert Muldoon would be re-elected as Prime Minister. His gambit had paid off. Although it could be argued that Muldoon and the Test Series supporters had won the day, there's no denying the arc of history bent in the favor of the anti-tour protesters. The Nationals would be swept out of office two years later. The next Labor government tackled cultural issues like LBGT rights and Maori rights. The All Blacks would not officially play the Springboks again, though some players did go to Africa on an unsanctioned tour. The 81 Test Series was yet another strike against the nation of South Africa. Global condemnation of apartheid was redoubled, and more importantly, the images of New Zealanders marching on the streets in support of black South Africans were shown throughout the country. Nelson Mandela was quoted in saying that when word of the cancellation of the Hamilton game made it to his prison on Robben Island, it was, quote, as if the sun had come out. Apartheid was not long for this world. In 1990, South Africa lifted bans on several black liberation parties in an effort to curtail a movement which could have quickly turned into a civil war. Several political prisoners were released, including Mandela, and the first truly free elections were held in 1994, Nelson Mandela became the first black leader of the nation of South Africa. A year later, the Rugby World Cup final would be held in Johannesburg. A mixed-race Springboks team faced off against their old foes, the All Blacks. With Mandela in attendance, the Springboks would lift the Webb Ellis Cup. Fast forward to November 2019. South Africa finds itself in another World Cup final. Not against New Zealand, but the founders of the game, England. It's been a tight game, but South Africa's been dominating. They're up 18-12, and they have control of the ball in the 65th minute. The ball is pitched to the left as a wall of Springboks moves to clear a path for Makazole Mapimpi, who deftly receives the ball, tiptoes down the sideline, and trickles a perfect kick of the ball past England's guard. Captain Sia Colisi races down the field to collect the ball. He beats the last English man to it and tosses it over his shoulder to Mapimpi, who strolls into touch for the first try in South Africa's World Cup final history. A pair of black players securing a title for the Springboks. Khaleesi, the Springboks' first black captain, would collect the Webb Ellis Cup and hoist it high above his head as his teammates and their nation lost their damn minds. I watched that game in my bed in Chicago at four in the morning. I watched it as my wife snored next to me. When Mapimpi scored that historic try, I shook my fist as softly as possible so I wouldn't wake her. And as the final whistle blew and the coverage switched to a crowd in South Africa, tears welled up in my eyes. I could give two dams about South African rugby, but seeing that crowd brought together by this team and the pride that they showed not only in their nation, but all of their players. That's what touched me. This moment wouldn't have been possible 
if we just stuck to sports. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This was a really fun episode to research and create, so I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed creating it. For more stories like this, you can follow along on our website, thejourneymansports.com. And you can also follow along with us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, at The Journeyman Sports, and on Twitter, at Journeyman Sports. Thanks again for listening. We'll meet again soon. Too many S's for my face.